A lot of people will just say like, oh, why don't people move? And honestly, that kind of blows my mind. It's like if everyone could just move to the perfect neighborhood with all the produce and the organic this and that, like you don't think people would? There's so many barriers and it was very eye-opening. Well, hello there, and welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thanks so much for giving the show a listen, or a view, or a download, wherever it is in the world that you are. We appreciate the fact that you are here. It should really go without saying, but health is complicated. What at first can seem so clear-cut and straightforward is often, in fact, more complex and more twisting than we can possibly imagine. One issue gives way to another, and then another, and another, and then pretty soon, what was originally thought to be so simple is instead a problem so perplexing that it can take years to fully understand the scope of the issue. Case in point, the coronavirus pandemic is shining a light on racial disparities in health like never before. And it's easy to say that the reason a person is overweight is because they eat unhealthy food. Seems straightforward enough, right? But really, the statement shouldn't end there. Instead, It should be, the reason a person is overweight is because they eat unhealthy food, and the reason they eat unhealthy food is because they don't live near a grocery store that sells high-quality, nutritious items. And then to take it a step further, the full statement should be, the reason a person is overweight is because they eat unhealthy food, and the reason they eat unhealthy food is because they don't live near a grocery store that sells high-quality, nutritious items, and they live in a major metropolitan city, the kind of city large enough to have a team for every major professional sport, and high-paying salaries for business professionals and a city with a slew of highly regarded colleges and universities. And in a nutshell, that is race and health. So on today's show, we are going to be exploring that, getting into how and why to not only take race, but also culture and income into consideration when talking about health. You can't really talk about health without it. These are important conversations. And to help us understand is someone who is an up-and-comer in the health field. She is a medical student who is studying culinary medicine and quickly becoming a social media star. Brooklyn Palmer will be here. You may know her better from Instagram as Beats by Brooke. And this is a 40-minute conversation that hopefully 
we'll begin to answer some of the questions that a lot of us haven't even considered yet. These are questions, these are topics that Brooklyn herself suggested and said that she wanted to explore today on the show. It's such a good idea. And it's always good to hear from a different point of view because it causes us to think about things in a way that we haven't done so before. And it might just help us solve one of the most complicated problems on the face of the earth. And it's a problem that has real life and death consequences. There is no two ways around that. And it's also a problem that has gone without a solution for far too long. So that's what Brooklyn and I will be talking about on the show today. And also on tap today, as the coronavirus continues to sweep through the country, infecting Americans at unprecedented rates, Dr. Neil Barnard will be here with a look at how the virus is able to spread so rapidly. He's got new information. Is it in the air? Can you get it with a gust of wind if you're outside? Does it matter even if you're inside or outside or even in an elevator? And what about the food that you're buying in the store? Can you get it from that? Well, Dr. Barnard is going to be taking a closer look at all of that with the fresh data. But first up on the exam room, we will be examining why race, culture, and income all deserve a prominent seat at the table when we're talking about health. Rolling right along here on the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee with the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Today's conversation is definitely an important one. We're going to be talking about how and why to take race, culture, and income into consideration when talking about health. And to join me in this conversation, we go to Texas, where we are joined via Zoom by medical student extraordinaire, social media star, Brooklyn Palmer. Brooklyn, thank you so very much for joining us. Yeah, of course. It's an honor to be here. I'm so thrilled that you are here. Uh, You were recently on the exam room live, and we got such an extraordinary amount of positive feedback. I thought that you would be the perfect person to have this conversation with because, uh, one, you just speak so eloquently about it on your social media channels on Instagram, by the way, at Beats by Brooke. Um, This is an important one. And so let's start with just kind of that, that big question here. And I think that a lot of people, even though they, they really want to do well and they're, they're well-intentioned, they still don't understand why this needs to be taken into account. When they think equality, they think it's the same for everybody and maybe the verbiage should be the same for everybody, but that's really not the case at all. So what, what is the big point that we're missing here? So I believe that the big point in considering the different elements that impact health is to understand that humans and health are extremely complex. And a lot of the training that people get, particularly in the United States, that's all I can speak on, is 
you know, very Eurocentric. And so the curriculum, what we're taught, I mean, even from a very obvious point, such as um, dermatology, you know, in medical school, when you hear different types of diseases, you only see them on fair skin. And so this is a very simple kind of reflection of different elements of healthcare curriculum in the United States from what I've experienced, that at the end of the day, like lighter skin patients are the ones that are the focus. And a lot of times that also translate to American patients. And, you know, because this is so ingrained in what a lot of people learn, you know, whether you're a physician, whether you're a dietitian, all, all different realms of wellness in the United States, a lot of times different cultures aren't necessarily at the forefront. And being a medical student, I've firsthand experienced that. I think a lot of this comes back to, testing honestly that might sound weird but at the end of the day which i don't necessarily you know blame the curriculum but you need to have like a very black and white way to ex like test students whether that's exams or the really big ones that you have to take and a lot of times those kind of are pushed to look at people look at race in a very narrow lens because it's easier to examine even though at the end of the day humans are so complex and they're so holistic. Um, and so those are just a couple of thoughts on it. And I kind of just wanted to go back to this word holistic too. A lot of times in the wellness community, we hear this term holistic health, right? And typically that means considering mental health, you know, exercise, food, all the above. And to me, I really urge people to consider holistic health as looking at the whole human. And what is a whole human? That is their life experiences. That is how the world treats their race. That is how the world treats their culture and how they're able to afford things. You know, to me, that should be what holistic health means. And in order to do that, we need to kind of consider all these different factors. I want to go back to what it was that you were saying, just as, as far as the dermatological pictures, like it, it never really dawned on me. And I'm thinking back to the you know, time that I spent studying some health courses in, in college and flipping through in my mind the, the textbooks. And I'm like, you're absolutely right. I've never seen a picture of a rash that wasn't on a hand that looked like mine. As a medical student, let me just ask you like this. No matter of fact, forget the medical student. From your perspective as an African-American woman, is that hurtful to you? Absolutely. It's like we are being left out of the conversation. And this conversation is the well-being of human beings. And so when you show skin only of one particular type, that is telling students that this is the skin that you should be most familiar with and the skin that you should be most familiar treating. You know, and so that really, that, that goes deep, right? And I feel like that is an example of why these different elements are so impactful for health because things like that that's a one very tiny example of so many ways in often american society that different cultures and races are being told that they should not be prioritized um again this kind of brings back to the testing thing is it easier to test on lighter skin are things brighter colored sure yes um should that mean that other skin colors are not prioritized i don't know about that you know they look drastically different. There's actually an Instagram account. I want to say it's Brown Skin Matters. Um, and they show them side by side. And just flipping through that blew my mind. And honestly, it was pretty disheartening because I was like, wait a second, I did learn all of this. But if I ever got this, if some of my family members got this, I wouldn't know what it looks like. And that just, that doesn't feel that good. <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, it's, so two questions there. I think that some some people might kind of uncomfortably be wondering at this point. One, uh, do you think that the people who were picking the pictures for these books did they intentionally leave out uh, the the darker skinned hands um, with the intent of you know downplaying the significance of the African-American community, or is it just because it's something that's been so ingrained for so many years now, we don't even give it a second thought. And, and it, 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 it's not like they're intentionally trying to be racist here. It's just yeah. habit at this point. Absolutely. And I think that brings up a huge, a huge thing of this implicit bias, right, that we talk about and how it is so ingrained that it's not thought about. And that fact alone should be highlighted, right? We should understand. And I think, I mean, that's one, isn't that a quote, you know, the first step in fixing a problem is understanding you have one. I think that is a perfect example of the situation. It might not be malicious intent, but it might have been rooted in malicious intent or rooted in the fact that the people who did make these decisions had a lot of bias. I mean, I think that kind of goes back to what I mentioned the last time. What is the history of racism in specifically medical racism is that sure it was a long time ago, but, and some of it was very horrendous and very malicious and that trickles down to the day. And even if we are not consciously having those same mindsets, having the same goals as maybe they did hundreds of years ago, we still see the effects today. And so, yeah, this is not me saying people are bad, you know, the people who are teaching are bad. It's that naturally with the way society was built, this is the result. And this is a reflection of implicit bias. And we need to recognize that bias in order to create a more inclusive health community. So do you think then, uh, I mean, if, if it starts so early in a person's medical career, you as a, as a future doctor, if this implicit bias begins in medical school, then would it not stay with the doctor throughout their entire career? And then maybe that would lead to a little bit of, of miscommunication with their patients. Yeah. So I, I have noticed it again in just the first year of medical school. And another thing to acknowledge about the medical system is that it's definitely very much like a hierarchy. And so a lot of times you are encouraged to not always not necessarily speak up if you see something wrong. You're, there are a lot of things in place. But at the end of the day, we are human. And when you are a student, when you are an intern, and there's a lot of decisions yet to be made for your career, it is naturally really hard to necessarily call out a superior. And at the end of the day, these superiors are going to also have those same biases and say stuff. And this is coming from what I've heard from firsthand from a lot of friends who have rotated a lot of doctors themselves um, of people saying, and it's just hard. I think it's very human nature that it's hard to call people out, especially if you think your career could be on the line for it. Um, And that reflects a lot of different things, but particularly how, you know, different races and cultures are treated. I think you're seeing a lot more brave souls now uh, who are willing to step up and to to call people out, um, which is definitely good and and will continue to you know push forward uh, some change here that is is so desperately needed. Uh, I want to ask you about some other ways that race can really impact lifestyle medicine. The majority of our viewers, our listeners are very much into lifestyle medicine, preventative medicine. I believe the last time you were on the show, you referred to it as culinary medicine. Um, mm-hmm. 
So let's let's start with some of the points that you raised with me in email. I mean, just the cultural differences with food among the patients. If you have somebody who walks into the doctor's office, looks like me, and then somebody who walks in right after me, looks like you, odds are the diets are a little bit different. Yes, for sure. And obviously, you know, we're not here trying to generalize, but at the end of the day, you know, backgrounds and experiences, a lot of that's shaped around food and a lot of cultures, a lot of what brings people together is food for good reason, right? Like we all love food. Um, (laughs) In Kone medicine and particularly the people in my school who do lead it have are very in tune with you know, prioritizing some of these underserved communities, some of these marginalized communities who might not be at the forefront. And so just to give an example, when you're using language surrounding food, you need to understand that not everyone is going to understand the same thing. For instance, something that honestly blew my mind was that this PhD that I was working at who specifically works with um, nutrition in underserved communities talked about how for years she was recommending hummus to her patients. And then one day, one of her patients had the guts to say, I don't know what hummus is. Mm. You know, and so it's really interesting. And even, you know, now I'm so ingrained in the wellness community that most people I know know what hummus is. I'm sure it might be familiar with you. And so this kind of comes back. If hummus is not in someone's culture, if that's not what they're around, they're used to, they're not going to know what you're talking about. And so I think that kind of brings in a major point is that it's so valuable to have the patient be involved with the conversation and not necessarily just being given advice. Because given advice, kind of like you mentioned, people mean well, like their goals a lot of the times are so pure. And I'm so grateful for anyone who is taking the time to give nutrition advice. Like that's such a big thing to take on, especially when it's not prioritized in the medical system. Um, But at the end of the day, it's very likely that you're going to reach more patients from different backgrounds if you are considering what they might be familiar or not familiar with when you're giving that advice. This is one that I'm, I'm going to need uh, some help from you understanding here would be um, unsafe neighborhoods. How, how was the environment somebody's raised in outside of their, their homes, their apartments, that environment, how does that then affect lifestyle medicine? Yeah, so one of the most glaring parts about that is going to be exercise, right? You know, so many people say that you should get 30 to 45 minutes of exercise a day. And trying to tell that to someone who doesn't feel safe going outside their home, particularly alone, that's going to be very hard to you know, adhere to, as um, people say in the medical community. And so it's one of those things where if you just tell someone get 30, 40 minutes of exercise and just leave it at that, if someone is in an unsafe neighborhood, maybe they do have a rec center, maybe they have a gym, maybe they can't afford the gym, maybe it's not safe to get to the route to get to the rec center, or maybe they go home at night and it's a lot less safe at night from work or from school, they're going to hear that and they're going to, like, in their mind say, okay, well, that doesn't apply to me because I can't do it. And so I guess I can't do it. Versus talking with them, how can you exercise? How do you exercise? You know, very simple things. Um, something that I thought was really interesting, drinking more water at work. And because of that, you go to the bathroom more, which, A, hydration is really important. But, B, it's one of those things where at the end of the day, just like all other parts of health, it's a spectrum, right? Just like exercise. And so if you are used to sitting around for maybe eight hours straight versus you get up three, four times in those eight hours, that's going to benefit you in so many ways. And so that's just one of many examples of different ways of, you know, encouraging exercise in the way that might be feasible to different people in different communities. So here's, here's another one, uh, chronic stress. 
uh, mm-hmm. that that we're all under. But I think that the underprivileged, those who live in minority communities, uh, very low income, facing discrimination, that's a lot of stress to take in day in and day out. Obviously, that too is going to have an adverse effect on a person's health. I just pulled up some stats here uh, from the CDC on my phone here as you were talking, looking at the prevalence of heart disease, which is, I think, where a lot of people go right away when you think about stress and uh, African-American population higher rates of heart disease than, than any other chronic stress. I would imagine not just heart disease, but that's going to have a huge role in all kinds of other ailments that people are facing. Yes. And so it will not only affect these end diseases, but also someone's likelihood to even make changes, right? You know, something we're both very interested in is lifestyle medicine. If someone is stressed, if someone feels like they're not safe in their neighborhood, maybe they have to work multiple jobs. And then on top of everything, maybe they believe that they aren't able to upgrade in their job because of what they look like. Maybe they're experiencing racism at work. You know, this really piles on top of each other. And to tell someone who might be dealing with all this stuff, like, hey, you should eat this or you should eat that. I think someone's level of stress is really going to be a huge hindrance in making some of these lifestyle changes. And so taking that into consideration when talking to people, which is tricky, right? Obviously, as you know, you you are talking to and reaching so many people. So you can't necessarily personalize every single conversation. That's not realistic. But I do think when people are talking to individuals, and again, whether you're a dietitian, a physician, um, or even if you are on social media, how can we use little words to at least acknowledge it? I think that's really valuable. Like I said, if you tell someone to exercise who can't, they're not going to feel seen. They're not going to feel like they are part of this conversation or that this advice is meant for them. But if you acknowledge, like, here's the advice, if you're experiencing this, it may be harder, here are other options, they're going to feel seen and they're going to feel heard. And I think that ties into mental health and stress, right? Because at the end of the day, that's such a human basic necessity to make them feel good, to make them move forward in life. And I think that's definitely an element of it. How can doctors, clinicians then begin to understand how to speak the language of their patients so that they can have these really beneficial conversations so that that information then can be retained and they can help their patient on a much higher level than they're currently able to? That's definitely a loaded question. <laughs> I wish a little I bit, a little bit, yep. <laughs> and I think a really baseline, and this probably sounds vague and not helpful, but is to be painfully, painfully open-minded. You know, a lot of physician clinicians can get burnt out. And so obviously just being a student, I'm not going to say this is super easy to do. I would never say that. I don't understand. I will one day, I'm sure. But it's very easy to kind of go into rotation, do the same things you always do, um, which I think kind of begs a different question of how overworked in some of the hours that clinicians face, which we won't get into right now because that's not the topic. But to your best capacity, understand that the more open-minded you are, the more that the patient is involved within the conversation, the more likely you are to be able to reach them and to make lasting change. Particularly, this is going to help the more vulnerable communities because they aren't, you know, the sole kind of person in the front people's mind when they're giving advice. As I said, this goes back to history, this goes back to curriculum, um, but that is the end result. Brooklyn, one of the things that we've talked about on the show here that's a a big factor to a person's health is the area that they live in. And, you know, unfortunately, where we see the highest rates of diseases 
we also see a lot of people are living in food deserts. But I also think that what is being overlooked is that if a person is living in a food desert, there's a very good chance that they're living in, well, I'm just going to coin a phrase, a medical desert where they don't have access to doctors and dietitians who truly understand, you know, or, or can even take the time to address a lot of these lifestyle and nutrition issues. Yeah, I completely agree with you. And that kind of just shows that there are so many layers to this. And that's why I fully believe, you know, one of the reasons I was pushed to get my master in public health, because there needs to be policy change. This is a policy issue. This is a government issue. And a lot of this has to do with locations. They genuinely physically cannot access some of these facilities. And there's just so many reasons for people not to be able to experience, you know, as much wellness as everyone on this planet, in my opinion, deserves. And so that's a really important point to note. And even just being on the social media and having talked about this, I've been able to see some of these really harsh opinions. And a lot of people will just say like, oh, why don't people move? And honestly, that kind of blows my mind. It's like if everyone could just move to the perfect neighborhood with all the produce and the organic this and that, like you don't think people would? There's so many barriers. And unfortunately, that some people hold that into their hearts. And it is very eye opening, because just like anyone else, you know, I am a victim of, I don't know if victim's the right word, um, of confirmation bias. And a lot of people that I surround myself with, they're they encourage me, they agree. And so it's really eye opening to see that so you see that and it just kind of goes to show that this needs to be approached on different levels. And this is really valuable in terms of, you know, so many people now seems to be talking about voting. I hope they actually do vote. But these are topics that p politicians are going to address if we bring them up and we show that we are going to vote based on their likelihood to address these certain things. And I mean, mind you, politics is definitely a weak area for me. I'm not going to act like I'm some professional on this. But when you talk about access to, you know, produce, access to medical centers, it shows that this is, you know, very far reaching. And kind of to add on that in terms of lack of dietitians, a lot of times people don't quite understand why I am passionate about physicians specifically getting nutrition training. A, very little happens now, and if it does happen, in, from what I've experienced, it's not always quality, applicable nutrition, but B, even if there are ways in terms of insurance for these communities to access dietitians and nutritionists, it's, there's going to be a lot more barriers. For instance, say a family is able to get to see a doctor, there's so many steps along the way. Maybe they have work, maybe have kids, maybe getting to the doctor itself was only for an emergency sake because they did not have the resources to go unless it was an emergency. A lot of people don't view diet and nutrition as emergencies. And just with their situation, the stress, having a hard time to physically even get there, it's going to be a lot less realistic that they're going to have easy, accessible you know, ways to talk with a dietitian. So that's why I believe it is so vital for physicians specifically to have at least the baseline understanding of nutrition, because particularly these communities who don't have access to dietitians, they're the ones who are going to benefit the most by, you know, not spreading misinformation, by giving them valuable, applicable knowledge that, as we know, is going to impact them in so many ways. And so that's why I think it's really valuable. I want to go back to what it was that you said about having a painfully open mind. 
Do you think it would also be beneficial for the patient to have that same painfully open mind and understand that the doctor has not had the same experiences that they have either? And so it would be kind of incumbent into both people who are in the room at that point to really just talk it out until you finally understand each other. That's an interesting point that you bring up. I think it's important to recognize that a lot of times when patients are in those situations, a lot of times they're very vulnerable and they are feeling ill, they're feeling not safe, and it's a lot less realistic for them to be in the top of mind of, okay, I'm feeling sick, maybe it was hard for me to even come in, maybe I barely have the insurance to even get in, and now it's my job to understand that my doctor, like I, it's my job to open their mind. I think when you sign up to be a healthcare provider, which again, I recognize that I'm not that deep into it, I recognize that I don't have the personal experience, so this is just based off of what I know, I believe that you are signing up to take care of the patient. The patient isn't signing up to help you open your mind. And so while I think that's valuable, while I believe that it's important to empower patients to advocate for themselves, I don't necessarily think that it is their job, but it would help. And, you know, even just in terms of people put physicians on pedestals and just as a society, you know, for various reasons. And it's hard when you have that, relationship right off the bat to feel comfortable even as from a patient's perspective to feel comfortable you know even trying to start the conversation or lead that and that's kind of something I mentioned before even just patients hearing advice a lot of times they don't even feel comfortable saying I don't know what you're talking about and so to think that they could also have this responsibility I think is just hard and I don't know I think that the healthcare we're set in place And our end goal is to serve and to care for patients. And that's, you know, we're able to do that if we take these things into mind. And I don't necessarily, it it would be beneficial, but I think it's less realistic and it's less, um, you know, should be their job, if that makes sense. But in a perfect world, yes, we would all be working together. But I think the dynamic of patient-physician, patient-healthcare provider, it's just not necessarily you can't always flip that because it's naturally set up to be different, if that makes sense. And that's why I'm so excited to have you on the show here is because, you know, I I throw out there something that just seems like the simplest solution in the world, but it's so, the, the problem is so complicated. And then you look at it from another, you know, point of view and what you say makes all the sense in the world. And so like that then, becomes just like hugely important to take that into into mind as well so let's let's talk then about diversity among doctors and and dietitians you know predominantly a a white field here at at this point uh what drove you into culinary medicine or lifestyle medicine as as our viewers know it better (laughs) that's that's actually a really good question I believe just in general, I grew up very, very independent um, inside like my house at school. I just had a lot of personal responsibilities to push myself forward. And I didn't have honestly a whole lot of encouragement for my education at home. Um, You know, I was still, you know, raised in a good family and stuff like that. But my education um, wasn't always necessarily prioritized. And I think that sometimes that results in either not going the education route or for some reason, my sister and I, we went the hyper education route. She's actually about to start her PhD in epidemiology. I'm obsessed with her. I don't really know how that happened. Um, (laughs) And so, yeah, you know, I didn't have any financial support for college. I either got scholarships or I worked as a waitress, you know, 
I'm not, I'm not quite sure. I think that potentially growing up with some of the issues that I faced, I've always wanted to connect with people. And, but I've also had my own personal issues with food and nutrition and mental health. And so I guess for me, the combination of wanting to feel better myself, but then wanting to give to others, make them feel better, kind of correlated with that. On top of everything, I think, kind of not to get too much into it, but I honestly have been like a lonely, you know, child and stuff like that. And so I think the idea of being a loner, aka going into a field where no one looks like me, not no one, of course, but you know, not predominantly looks like me, I think I've grown comfortable with that at a young age. And so even, you know, in college, you go to these pre-med events, I'll look around, there won't be a single black person in the room. And uh, and I think that definitely weighs on you over time. And I think there's definitely some like unhealthy ways I'd probably try and compensate with it, just to be completely honest. Um, but yeah, I'm not, I'm not quite sure. But those are a couple little layers, a couple of tidbits in there for you. <laughs> well, let's see if we can find some, some common ground and universe, uh, universality here. Because I think that what you just described reminds me a, a lot of what I, I felt. And I'm, our situations obviously were completely different. But uh, I grew up also feeling, you know, very much a, a loner, but very much self-driven at points. Like I knew what I wanted and I worked hard for it. You talked about being a waitress and, you know, not having a lot of support as far as your education at home. Didn't have the money for it, but you made that happen. That was your own personal drive. I grew up dirt poor as well. We were talking before we started rolling here about, you know, I was eating at food banks and having our utilities cut off all the time didn't have money for anything, even though I grew up, you know, in one of the most affluent uh, counties in America, Fairfax County, just outside of Washington, D.C. And and it was hard. And, um, And that was just the reality. But just having that drive to keep pushing and pushing and pushing to bring yourself forward. And so I just think that, you know, the commonality here, no matter what, just being humans, that belief in yourself and that drive to want to do better for yourself than to be able to help others. I think that that is something that we can all agree on. Absolutely. And thank you for sharing that. Um, really beautiful. I definitely, just just to put out there, I grew up kind of like lower middle class, um, but in terms of financial support for my education, I definitely did not have any um, for college and stuff like that. So thank you for sharing that. And I think you're totally right. And I don't know what that is. You know, we all know, you know, in health psychology, it's a combination of nature versus nurture. Maybe we got that self-drive gene. Maybe there's just a couple of paths along the way, but there's just something in my mind from a young age where if I saw someone do something, it was very logical. Oh, okay. If they did it, I can do it too. And that's, that's pushed me through. And I don't know where that came from. Um, but I'm really grateful. And I think a part of it also was humility. I reached out to mentors from such a young age, you know, even in high school, I still talked to some people that helped me through. And I just accepted that I didn't know a lot of stuff. I didn't understand how college worked. You know, I'm first generation student. I didn't know a lot of things. And I do believe that humility, again, and I feel like that kind of goes back to open-mindedness, is so beneficial, not only for other people, but honestly for yourself too, because I think you're going to grow more from it. Um, What do you think it's going to take to have more diversity uh, among doctors? Phenomenal question. I believe that it's really important to backtrack a lot you know, how are some of these communities getting proper education? How are they being encouraged to even believe that they can become a physician, to become a professional in some way, shape, or form in the first place? I 
again, education is not my strong suit, but I think it's very natural. We kind of talked about before, it's like the why, you know, and I think the more you can backtrack, the more you kind of look at this. And so I think it's going to have to happen in every different realm, not just medicine. You know, by the time someone applies to medical school, they have had college, they have had SAT prep, they have had X, Y, Z, and all those steps along the way really make or break someone's likelihood of even believing that they have it in there. I do believe that, you know, more social presence of diversity in all fields is very beneficial because representation, again, kind of like we talked about with the dermatology, you know, illnesses, it's kind of like representation, like, okay, I'm there, I matter, I'm supported. And I think that does kind of reflect how media portrays, which oh my goodness, have gone so much better. I, I mean, I know that I'm younger than you, but even thinking back to what I saw on TV as a kid, I'm so grateful. But again, that happened gradually. This, unfortunately, is also going to happen gradually. I wish it would happen faster. But I do believe that looking at school systems, you know, why are more communities of color schools get less funding? You know, all that stuff really, really adds up you know, year by year in someone's education um, to support them, either financially, even just the numbers of exams, but also just emotionally to have them believe in themselves that they could even get to that point. Well, here's why I asked you that question, uh, because it's so desperately needed. Uh, a colleague, our producer, Laura Anderson, uh, before we started rolling, passed along a, a note to me. She did some research. She found that African-American, Hispanic, and Native American physicians are much more likely to work in underserved communities. And she also said that African-American and Hispanic physicians in particular, as well as women, are far more likely to care for patients who are on Medicaid. And so that really speaks to, you know, wanting to help and being able to understand your patients and having compassion for that situation. And so if you have somebody in those roles who genuinely understands where that patient is coming from, Brooklyn, that's going to make all the difference in the world. I think you bring up a phenomenal point with that fact is that that really, if that doesn't reflect implicit bias, so that doesn't reflect, you know, this integration of who certain people deem worthy of care, not necessarily worthy of care, but who they're going to prioritize. I think that's a perfect example. Like, why is that disproportionate? I don't necessarily think that is always like, okay, I'm going to give back to my people, my community, but just being open-minded, having experienced some of it yourself and understanding that there is such a need. And of course, you can never give people experiences, right? You can never give people this personal connection, but I think it does highlight the need to prioritize these concepts, to prioritize how you know, people are impacted, but it's tricky, right? Like there's, I feel like sometimes it feels like there's only so much you can share with someone. And again, they have to be open-minded in the first place, which I think comes back to humility of, okay, what do I know? You know, what help does there need to be in this world? Who can teach me? Um, and just placing value on the thoughts. And it's kind of interesting that you brought up the female part, because as we see Nowadays, in medical schools in particular, it is approximately, from my understanding, 50-50 between male and female. And it is interesting kind of how they've seen this higher rates of compassion in females, which I think is a whole different conversation. But it's interesting you brought that up. I didn't know those facts, but I could probably have guessed them. Um, And I think it's really valuable. Again, the more that we do have people in this field who might have a personal connection in some way, shape, or form to these very important, these very impactful healthcare disparities, the more we're going to give back and the more we're going to like make waves in approaching them. 
You know, the funny thing is, speaking about uh, women in particular, uh, I'm I'm just really surprised that, you know, there aren't more female doctors out there. You know, I, I would think that, and this is just, you know, layperson Chuck here talking, right? This is no scientific evidence. This is just me speaking from what my gut tells me is like women with that maternal instinct and that instinct that there is to nurture medicine just seems like the perfect field for that you know absolutely and so it's interesting because early on we did have like a women in medicine talk and uh, is some a physician a female physician came and sat at the table and she said she had brought up to her male colleagues and the the response of the male colleagues was oh isn't there enough of y'all already so i thought that was kind of a little interesting a little tidbit um, and just how people, if they aren't in these groups, they don't understand the importance it is to rise, raise these voices up. So I agree with you, obviously not to generalize in any way, shape, or form. But again, there was a time that women couldn't be physicians, even if they could, where there are a lot of societal pressures to not become physicians. You know, even women who uh, try to approach this field, they have not only sometimes from their family, sometimes from their friends, this pressure to be in something that's more flexible, that's more, you know, able to have kids. Physicians' life is very busy. It's totally possible. Many, many female physicians have children, have a family. And I think the combination of the history and the pressure to not go into education is a part of it, but also just the social, the social pressure that is very real. You know, I think it's interesting. People talk about peer pressure as if it's only in middle school and yet it is alive and well in every single walk of life and every part along this journey of life. And that pressure to potentially, you know, do something that will be more suitable to have kids is definitely there. And so I think we're getting there. Like I said, nowadays, from my understanding, medical schools are about 50, 50, And I think that females definitely do have some things that males might not that make them um, pretty good and pretty compassionate physicians. Oh, I mean, there's no question about it. I think back to when I was still an overweight teen, right? Uh, Shout out to Dr. Connie Chu at Arlington Primary Care in Northern Virginia. Um, (laughs) So when I was still overweight, um, she really did. She treated me with compassion. She didn't necessarily sugarcoat what -hmm. was going on, but I actually felt like she gave a hoot about me. And when I would schedule an appointment because I was chronically ill all the time on high blood pressure, I was just a mess. But when she wasn't there and I would see somebody other than her, whether it be the nurse practitioner or another doctor in the practice, it was just cold and callous and just a dismissive conversation, you know, as if I didn't care because, or I didn't matter because I was overweight. That was how I, you know, walked away feeling with everybody else in the office. But Dr. Connie Chu, like she, she took her time and I felt like she just, you know, proverbially put her arms around me, took time to listen and really addressed it. And after I lost the weight and had moved away, I still made it a point to go back and see her one time just so she could see that I had finally made a lot of the changes that she had, uh, talk to me about for all those years. That makes me so happy. That's definitely the type of physician that I aspire to be. I think you bring up a good point that I think, again, I'm, this, is not, this is more anecdotal, but you kind of go back to this foundation of medicine, which is listening. You know, you said that people felt cold, other people felt like they didn't listen to you. And I do think 
overall you see a trend of females just being better listeners and I think that that can be reflected in medicine and kind of you know just to bring back a point that I bring up before when you talked about patients advocating for themselves you know right now you just from your own experience talked about like how impactful a physician can be whether good or bad you know patients don't always necessarily it's not the same kind of impact as naturally I think in the way you know we look at physicians and you know, the, the words of a doctor can be so, so, so powerful, again, for good or bad. And I think that that is why it really is up to, you know, physicians, but again, backtrack how physicians are trained, because, you know, that to me is really a big part of it. I don't, not to justify behaviors or actions or anything like that, but just to highlight, especially to people who, you know, maybe have a bad view of doctors being like, oh, yeah, she's right. Physicians don't care. Physicians are acting like this. Let's, let's take a couple of steps back. How are they trained? How are they taught to prioritize and talk to patients? I think that's really valuable to look at both sides of it because it isn't just one person hopping into the role of a doctor acting a certain way. There's so many steps before that. And I always want to make sure I highlight that, especially as there is this mistrust um, in some communities for doctors for different reasons. And so I think it's very valuable to understand that a patient experience, a healthcare experience is so much beyond that individual person you talk to, it's the hospital, it's insurance, it's the whole system. And I think just naturally as humans, we see a face, we see interaction and we A plus B equals my end result. And I think it's so, so important to really emphasize to people um, who might not be familiar with the entire system that it is so, you know, multidimensional, which I think I went on a tangent, but I think you understand what I'm saying. (laughs) It's cool. We're, uh, we're kind of running out of time here. So we need to, (laughs) to wrap things up. Let's, uh, let's end on this positive note. You know, I, I love it so much. Are you optimistic that at some point people will understand? you know, not just how to, but why it's important to take race, culture, socioeconomic background, all of these things into consideration when you're having conversations about health. It is not just black and white of, oh, you have heart disease, you don't. No, there's a whole lot that goes into why a person does or why a person doesn't. Do you feel like in the future, and we're making progress toward that future starting today, that people will have a better understanding of how it all ties together. I do. I really do feel optimistic. This recent situation, a lot of medical schools that I know from the, like from having insider information, a lot of them are talking about how do we incorporate this into the curriculum. And those conversations are happening right now and they're happening at a much saturated rate than they were before. That gets me excited. Social media gets me excited because you know, again, we are understanding how powerful it is and how many voices can be heard that potentially weren't heard before. And now it's, you know, so beneficial that we are lifting these voices of people who may have not been, again, at the forefront of everyone's minds in the past. And so I am optimistic. I am excited for the future. I'm excited to help in any way, shape I can. Um, And I think that good things are going to happen. Well, uh, I'm excited that uh, you're going to be on the show again and again and again. Uh, I'm just going to keep bringing you back because you bring such positive energy and enthusiasm and knowledge, and you are definitely, uh, you know, a rare gem. So thank you so very much. Thank you for those kind words. I appreciate it. You are more than welcome. And everybody, go follow Brooklyn at Beats by Brook on Instagram. Tons of amazing pictures on there. I don't know who your photographer is, but they are extraordinary. Shout out to Christina. I love her. Also beats the food beats. I always like to throw that out there. Beats by Brooke. (laughs) Important to note. Brooklyn Palmer, thank you so much.
Thank you. There's a link to Brooklyn's Instagram in the show notes for your clicking convenience. Now, a quick postscript to our conversation specific to COVID-19. According to an analysis by APM Research Lab, which tracks data from state and local health departments, African-Americans are nearly four times as likely to die than whites from COVID-19. And for Native Americans, indigenous people, that rate is more than three times as high. The Latino community, two and a half times. And genetics aren't what is driving those numbers. So as Brooklyn and I were talking about, important conversations still need to be had. So let's keep talking. All of us, let's keep talking. Let's keep learning. Moving on. The coronavirus continues to race its way to new levels. The spread is pedaled to the metal with no letting up for much of the U.S. and other parts of the world. So what exactly is behind this blitzkrieg of cases? There is a renewed focus on determining how we become infected, how easily someone who has it can pass it on to you. And to get a look at the newest data, I asked Dr. Neil Barnard to join me on the exam room live recently. And on the day that we taped this interview, there had been more than 130,000 new cases reported in the U.S. alone over the last 48 hours. And hospitals were being pushed to their limits in the hardest hit states like Florida, where more than 100 hospitals had run out of ICU beds. Fatalities nationwide had jumped 64% over the last two weeks. And again, that begs the question to be asked one more time. How is it that this virus is able to spread so quickly through communities. For that, we turn to Dr. Barnard. Dr. Barnard, here's the situation. 37 states plus the district in Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands, they're all seeing an increase in both new cases and in many places, a surge in deaths as well. What is happening here? I think a lot of people still just aren't really sure how it's being transmitted so quickly. Those are crucial questions. Uh, we are not winning this battle collectively as a, as a nation or or globally, I have to say. You do see some places where things are getting better, but um, overall the picture is one where the, the exit of this virus is slower than had been predicted, and that's certainly true here in the U.S. So it raises the question of what can you do about it um, and how are people getting it? Uh, if you walk into a room, and somebody had been there and they were breathing out the virus. Is it in the air? Are you going to catch it that way? Or 
Is it only if somebody sneezes right in front of you? Uh, does a mask help? Doesn't it help? There was a, a good article that just came out in the Journal of the American Medical Association just last week. And I want to share the findings with you. But first of all, a little bit of, ba- little bit of background. Here you are. Uh, this is a person who, let's say, they got the virus and they cough it out um, in a big, res- what we call a respiratory droplet. Uh, that means it's a mixture of moisture and some virus in there, but it's heavy. So it falls to the ground, hopefully within six feet. But the question is, are there other particles that are smaller that can become sort of airborne and they don't settle to the ground? And we're going to call them aerosols. There's been a lot of debate back and forth about these two possibilities, and it's really important. Uh, the droplets, that's really what uh, will transmit a flu or a cold. And the aerosols, that's uh, measles or chickenpox chicken or tuberculosis. And, and the difference is really important. Um, what this really means is you're not going to catch a cold by uh, stepping into an elevator where a person with a cold had been. Because for the most part, the cold viruses cling to these respiratory droplets. They fall to the ground and, 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 and they're gone. Same thing with influenza. Uh, but with the aerosols, measles, uh, the virus can be airborne for a longer period of time. And that's where you see this widespread transmission. So the question is, COVID-19, the cor- coronavirus, is it a droplet? Is it an aerosol? And it looks like it can be either one. It possibly can be either one. These uh, studies on, on this kind of phenomenon go way, way back. With tuberculosis back in 1934, a researcher named William Wells was trying to figure out uh, how tuberculosis was being uh, spread. And his conclusion was it was go- so widespread because it was aerosolized. So with regard to coronavirus, what's the main method? It can be a virus. It can be a droplet. It can be an aerosol, but we have a way of sorting out which is the most important. And that will show us what we need to do. Okay. On the left, you've got a person who's going to em- emit droplets and there are their friends all around them. But if they cough out a droplet, it might hit somebody or it might not. So uh, we can calculate how many people are going to get infected from one person with the disease. The person on the right does not have a droplet. The person on the right has got an aerosol, meaning a tiny little particle that can go widespread. And they've got friends, too. So if it's aerosolized, you're going to spread it much more widely. So researchers try to look at which of these could it be. If it's an aerosolized virus, that means you're going to see if there's one person who's got it in a restaurant, in a business, uh, where it could be, you're going to see a lot of infected people around them. If it's a droplet, then you're going to see maybe one or two infected people around them. So um, what's the answer? How many people can one patient infect? Measles, aerosolized, 18. That's a big number. So if you've got one person in your family, who's got the measles virus, you can expect it to be expected to be airborne. A lot of people are going to catch it. With SARS-CoV-2, this is the COVID-19 virus, down to 2.5. So what does that mean? According to JAMA, that means that the balance of currently available evidence suggests that long-range aerosolized-based transmission is not the dominant mode of transmission. What this means is that for the most part, you're not in tremendous danger of going out for a walk and somebody on a bicycle going past you. That's not really it. Or even being in a large room with other people, the risk is not super high. 
where you are at most risk is where we always thought you were at most risk, is being in fairly close proximity to other people. But either way, we want to be cautious. We do want to wear masks, not so much to protect you from others, but to protect others from you. And the new etiquette is you're wearing a mask to show your respect for other people. Um, so it, it blocks a virus that you may have. It drops the, the it stops the big droplets from going out. You do want to wash your hands because droplets can uh, arrive at surfaces and you can pick them up and you touch your eye, you touch your mouth um, and you can self inoculate that way. We do need social distancing as much as ever, but it looks like, although it's conceivable that air, airborne aerosolized viruses could theoretically affect the whole choir, um, that's much less likely to occur. So we still want to do all the things to protect ourselves, but, um, but the, the old wisdom, the old wisdom as of about April still seems to be the one that applies. When it comes to close quarters here, I would imagine that masks are even of greater importance. We just heard what happened aboard that fishing vessel. 85 members out of a not even a 130-person crew came down with COVID-19. So let's go back to the elevator. I mean, if you're really within super close proximity of somebody, that then is when the mask is of ultra importance. Yeah, but, but it's probably not the person who got off the elevator five minutes ago who was a risk to you. It's not like they are aerosolizing it and staying in the elevator. Theoretically possible, but it doesn't seem to fit the epidemiology. The problem is the person who got on with you, who's coughing and sneezing and doesn't have a mask, that's just asking for it. The other thing, by the way, I got to tell you, Chuck, um, you know, we've talked about slaughterhouses because there you've got people. It's like an elevator where you got people next to, you know, one person, another person next to them, another person next to them, except that it's an enormous room of people working hour after hour. Those droplets that they may be coughing out can not only infect the other workers, which is why we have tens of thousands of infected workers. And what was it as of last week? 148 deaths among the yeah. workers, something like that. Um, but it also raises this continuing concern about the meat products. Uh, because the droplets fall onto whatever you're working on, and then in a refrigerated or frozen uh, surface, then they remain viable for a long long period of time. So, so that's the big concern there. Yeah, and obviously we saw what China did restricting imports, where they found that to be on, I believe, salmon and shrimp. They said, no, it's no longer coming into the country after there was a, an outbreak at a, at a market tied back to that. So, Yeah, salmon, shrimp, uh, also pork. Um, so, and, and I think it's significant that China would do this um, for a couple of reasons. One is China has been in the game ever since the beginning. That's where it started. And China owns the Smithfield slaughterhouses. So if they don't want to eat that product, um, it, raise, it, it makes me wonder why we don't have more warnings about that here in, in this country. And again, uh, let's just talk right to the critics who say, well, you're talking about refrigerated foods. <laughs> You guys eat a lot of bagged salads who eat the plant-based diet. Couldn't you get it from that as well? The, the things that really matter are, first of all, is the virus plentiful in the area where the thing is being produced? And then it, does it remain uh, refrigerated or frozen up until use? And so theoretically, anything can be infected. And everybody kind of wonders, I'm at the produce aisle. I see the person in front of me picking up that Fuji apple and setting it back down. Those are all reasons for concern. However, um, the places where the virus is most common is within the slaughterhouses for whatever reason, the conditions people work under and the tremendously close proximity, which seems to be a little bit different compared with 
say an orchard or other produce uh, farms. The other thing about it is that once the apples or pears or oranges um, are picked, they may be kept cold or they may not be. Um, and in the store, they're typically not refrigerated. And so at room temperature, the virus tends to not last very long. The, the differences are typically hours on a, on a room temperature surface to indefinite if it's refrigerated or frozen. The Exam Room Live airs Monday through Friday over on the Physicians Committee's Facebook page and YouTube channel. Dr. Barnard, myself, a ton of experts from the medical and plant-based communities, as well as some people who have revolutionized their health, really transformed their entire lives, they join us as well. So the Exam Room Live is really just like a daily dose of the Exam Room podcast. It's just rolled into an abbreviated program. That's why I call it the healthiest half hour anywhere online today. Give you an idea about a recent show. We called it Food Matters More Now Than Ever. It took a look at the connection between diet-related chronic diseases, you know, the same ones that significantly increase the risk of COVID-19. We're talking about heart disease and diabetes, hypertension, cancer, how all of them are playing a major role in this pandemic. And more importantly, how a growing number of doctors and medical professionals are now seeing that. And they're standing up and they're finally saying it is time to look at our diets. Enough is enough. And so we got a chance to talk about that. And even how the editor-in-chief of the medical journal BMJ wrote a statement. In that journal, with the headline, What We Eat Matters All the More Now. BMJ is one of the most widely respected medical journals on the market today. Extends far beyond preventative medicine. Your primary care physician. I will bet you dollars to vegan donuts, reads BMJ. And so what this editor-in-chief, what she was saying was, pump the brakes on red meat, pump the brakes on processed meat and refined carbs and junk food, and instead fuel up on whole fruits and whole vegetables, whole grains. And if everyone did that, we'd be in a whole lot better shape than we are right now. That's not to say that food can make you immune to COVID-19, nor is that saying that if everyone suddenly went plant-based, that it would eradicate the pandemic. Not saying that at all. But what it is saying is that it will put us in a far better position for the next pandemic. Because if the rates of those chronic diseases, like diabetes, if the rates were very much lower, then people, frankly, would be at far less risk than they are right now. So you can check out a replay of that particular show over on Facebook and on YouTube. The links to both are in the show notes. 
And if you haven't already done so yet, or you're listening on your web browser, please go ahead and subscribe to the Exam Room Podcast on Apple Podcast or wherever it is that you get your shows from and leave a five-star rating. And then share the show with your friends and your family. Get them to subscribe. Because the more subscriptions and the more high ratings we get, the easier it becomes for people to find this information. And they too, hopefully then, can begin to revolutionize their health and transform their lives in ways never thought imaginable. And by the way, if you are ready to make a change and you want to take even better control of your health than you are right now, it could really help if you had a doctor or a dietitian who understands where you're at. And you can make an appointment to visit with our plant-based professionals over at the Barnard Medical Center. We're talking about doctors and dietitians who really put nutrition into laser focus. A group that seeks to treat the cause of the problem instead of just the symptom. And then, when they've identified the cause, they will work with you on getting your health back on track. And the big news, the big breaking news that Dr. Barnard unveiled last Friday on the Exam Room Live was that patients are now being accepted in Florida. The Barnard Medical Center now available in the Sunshine State. So to make your appointment, head over to barnardmedical.org or pick up the phone and call 202-527-7500. Again, 202-527-7500 or barnardmedical.org. As always, a link is also in the show notes. Now, also, if you live in California, New York, Washington, D.C., Maryland, Virginia, Missouri, Arizona, Colorado, Massachusetts, or Kentucky, you can also make an appointment today, as well as the great state of Florida. As for today, it's going to wrap things up. My thanks again to Brooklyn Palmer for joining us. And on behalf of Dr. Neil Barnard and everyone here at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, stay safe, take a stand, and keep it plant-based. <laughs>